Hey, this is Dead Air Radio. This is where we play the official releases from The Grateful Dead. We are on over 60 radio stations across the globe. Now, when we're not on the radio, making hot radio, uh, we make these little podcasts. And what it is is just uh, featured interviews with the guests. And we talk about what's going on in the world. For instance, when you throw out the word and number Woodstock 50, there's a lot of hype surrounding that. We're getting box sets, uh, a festival that could maybe sort of possibly could happen. Uh, We've got other festivals, smaller scale festivals. And of course, we've got books. We wanted to really focus on the experience of the people who were there when they were there. And we spent a lot of time talking with audience members. That's an angle of one of the books. Dan Buckspan, and the title of the book is Woodstock, 50 Years of Peace and Music. Now, I would like to say I've been keeping a really close watch on all of the Woodstock 50 hype, but I got to give big props to Dan and his publishing company because he was probably the he was the only author to send me an advanced copy of the book, which helps me kind of prepare for the interview. And it also shows class on their part and it also shows how proud they are of the book. As far as I can tell, I think this is really one of the first accounts of the Woodstock Festival that's told very much from the perspective of the audience. So it's a story to the people, for the people by the people. It's about their impressions, the festival's conditions, what it took to get there, leaving, and all of the peace and love and music that took place in between. The people that I spoke to who had been in the audience, they're all around like 70 years old now, pretty much. A lot of them had this feeling of, I was there, this happened to me, this needs to be documented because we're not all going to be here forever. Um, You know, so I felt lucky to get their perspective, but also, you know, I was kind of honored that they were going to let me be the custodian of these memories that they had that were clearly very important to them and that not many people had memorialized in print before. Now, going through that advanced copy of the book, and Dan even mentioned this when he was doing the interviews, it's amazing how well the attendees remembered their personal experiences. I mentioned this a little bit in the introduction, that there's this old cliche of, oh, if you can remember Woodstock, then you weren't really there. That's not true. These people remember everything. You just got the sense, just from speaking to them for just a couple of minutes, this was a major event in their lives. And it was really a defining moment for them. Hey, man, I just got to say that you people have got to be the strongest bunch of people I ever saw. Three days, man. Three days. We just love you. We just love you. Once that was clear to me that that's where they were coming from, was to be really respectful of their experience and to really handle it with love. Of course, the festival goers had gone on to do different things. In a sense, they grew up. But Dan says that very few of them were trying to capitalize on their Woodstock experience. However, there was always a piece of that experience that they carried around. There are a lot of memories that I have in my own life when I was 18, 20 years old that I really treasure, that I've really fond memories of. I know how much those things mean to me. I had to sort of put myself in their place and recognize, well, this is what this means to them. And we're going to present it as is, as they said it was. We're not going to editorialize about it. And we're just going to put their experience directly out there with no filter. 
that was very important to me. And because Dan talked to so many people, he had different perspectives all on the same event. Some people didn't know major situations took place and some people testified that some major experiences weren't even true. A lot of things get famous that don't necessarily deserve to, that were really not actually a big part of people's experience there. It was immortalized on the soundtrack album that people were advised not to take the brown acid. Now, if you've taken it already, don't worry because you're not poisoned and you won't die. But if you haven't taken it, I would recommend that you don't take it. And just listen to the music and wait till you get some stuff that you know is good, if that's your inclination. That's called common sense. If you've listened to the soundtrack album, I'm sure you remember that. The brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest. But uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? So I really wanted to know, okay, no one's really looked into this before. What, what was the deal with the brown acid? And so I asked every person that I interviewed, uh, right up to the promoters, what the deal was with it. Nobody could really remember that there even was specifically any brown acid there at all. It was more likely that like maybe one person had taken some acid that was not good or that was cut with speed or something like that and had a bad experience. And that just kind of snowballed for people into, oh my God, oh my God, don't take the brown acid. I asked Wavy Gravy about it. And I asked him like, so, you know, what, what was the deal with the brown acid? And he goes, dude, there were like 800 colors of acid there. I am informed that somebody somewhere is giving out some flat blue acid. It is poison. Those of you who have partaken of the green acid. I took that green stuff and I feel great. What's all the hassle? We got a whole lot of orange. And it was fine. It still is fine. Everybody's vibrating. The event was larger than life. The soundtrack album was larger than life. Everything about Woodstock became larger than life. Even that album cover. You know, I spoke to Bobby and Kelly Erkeling. They're the couple on the cover of the album. They were just two kids who heard about this concert and they went. And at one point they just happened to be standing there wrapped in a blanket and some guy got a picture of it. And now for the last 50 years, they've become kind of miniature celebrities from it. Like they have tourists come to their house the news will come and, and speak to them on anniversaries. It's had a real effect on their lives without them ever having any intention of that happening to them. The music was amplified. The moments were amplified. Dan talked about how the event was really a great way to turn down the noise of the late 60s and turn on to something more positive. When you think about what was going on historically at the time. I think the politics of this event is about freeing John Sinclair from prison, who's facing 10 years for two joints of marijuana while we're all sitting here digging rock music. There was a lot of turmoil. It was, it was a really heavy period in history. Michael Lang in particular, who was one of the promoters, said that part of his inspiration for wanting to do Woodstock in the first place was that he felt like in a lot of ways the dream of the 60s, of what it could be, seemed to be fading at that time. 
you know, I think there was a real feeling for a couple of years before that, that the energy and feelings of just the youth movement at the time was going to build and there was going to be a real revolution and they were going to take over the world. Not a violent revolution, but just one of where their attitudes would prevail and that sort of thing. And I think by 1969, what he was saying and what a couple of other people I talked to were also saying was that by then it kind of had this feeling of this might not be working out. This, this may not be how things are going to go. There was just a lot of discontent generally with the world at the time, with the war and uh, with LBJ. There was just a lot of really bad sentiment out there. But I think you people have proven something to the world, not only to the common people. Sullivan County on New York State, you've proven something to the world. This is the largest group of people ever assembled in one place. A half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music. And I got bless you for it. With all the madness going on in the world, Woodstock aimed for peace and music for three days. The vibe was so strong, even through the weather and technical difficulties, the festival stretched out to end up being four days, and the people were chill during the whole time. So much went right that should not have gone right. In a lot of ways, it's kind of amazing that it went off the way that it did, that it went off as well as it did. Chip Monk, who was the original lighting designer, and also uh, was the MC about half the time at Woodstock. He's the one who actually gave the warning about the brown acid. The brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. When I interviewed him, he said that he thought, you know, one of the big reasons that the festival was peaceful and that there were no problems like that, he said, was because it rained at exactly the right time. And that brings up a classic deadhead term used by both band members and fans talking about the X factor. It's uh, the use for the uncontrollable and unpredictable wild, quote, good thing that comes into play when the music is at its best. The X factor is like the weather. It cannot be commanded, but it kind of can be invited. You can't go like, okay, we're going to release the rain now, so everyone has a has something to bond over. When the X Factor is in effect, the jams glide forward like a silver locomotive on a frictionless rails, spiriting band and fans together on that glory ride. You can call it the zone. You can call it the godhead. You just make sure you call me when it happens. <laughs> The rain kind of gave everyone something to bond over. And uh, it gave them like a pain point to bond over. You know, you can't time that. It's just what happened. It's really exciting and probably one of the most frightening responsibilities that we have. We have the ability to gather this many people in this industry uh, with the vibes that we have here present. 
This also gives us the responsibility or forces it upon us, whether we really like it or not, to take care of us all. Uh, we're going to have an experiment in this phenomenon that no one else, I think, has ever had. Welcome yourselves to this experiment. And um, so much of Woodstock going off the way that it did was really not in anyone's control. It was really out of a lot of people's hands. Woodstock definitely captured lightning in a bottle. Through the struggle, there was a bond. Now, there's a pretty trippy quote in a book written by a Spanish philosopher. Uh, the book is titled, The Tragic Sense of Life. Spiritual love is born from sorrow. When we love one another with spiritual love, only when we have suffered the same sorrow together. When long days we have plowed stony ground, we know another and feel another. It's much easier to find common ground when you guys are at rock bottom and not when we claim we're on top of a materialistic mountain. So, it, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's a very tricky balance. I think that there was a spirit of we're all kind of struggling together. keep this weekend rolling that you couldn't have actually at a better organized event. Buckspan shares a very cool story of an act of kindness. There was one guy that I talked to who had bought his tickets and they started letting everyone in and the fences were coming down. And so he walked over to, I guess, what would have been the box office and like stuffed his tickets into the window just so, you know, so like, look, I paid here, here are my tickets. And then he went in. He wanted to do it as according to the rules as possible. Like, oh, look, I'm a good citizen. See, I paid. Throughout our conversation, I couldn't help but notice Dan used this term, accidental greatness. There was a lot that happened that wasn't planned and couldn't be planned. Joel Rosenman, who is one of the promoters, when he looks back at the Woodstock story, to him, the hero of Woodstock was the crowd. Because you had 400,000 people in less than optimum conditions for almost four days, and they kept it together the whole time, which is incredible. Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. That's a huge amount of people. That's almost, I think, the population of San Francisco. Without any sort of prompting or without anyone telling them to do it, these, these kids just sort of formed a little impromptu society with a social contract. It's been a delight seeing you. Let's be kind to our neighbor. If people want to go over to the South Stage and see some music, they leave their blanket or their bedroll, don't trample on it. Figure they're going to be coming back. They get to go see the music over there, too. May we wish you anything that the person next to you wishes for you. We're going to need each other to help each other to work this out because we're taxing the systems that we have set up. But the one major thing you have to remember tonight when you go back up into the woods to go to sleep or if you stay here is that the man next to you is your brother. And you damn well better treat each other that way because if they don't, then we blow the whole thing, but we've got it right there.
and say thank you to yourself for making this the most peaceful, most pleasant day anybody's ever had in this kind of music. Everyone just knew, like, okay, this is a kind of, like, special once-in-a-lifetime thing, and we're going to keep it together. We're not going to let this devolve into something horrible. To their credit, that's exactly what happened. And that's sort of how the Gettysburg Address works into the Woodstock scene. One of the most important speeches in American history. In it, President Lincoln touched on the principles of human equality. That was in the Declaration of Independence and connected the sacrifices of the Civil War with their desire of a new birth of freedom. Some people say in the back or wherever you may be that the principles of the fair have copped out. Um, (laughs) I hardly think this is so. The provisions that have been made for food and water between the army and the volunteers, we're in pretty good shape. Bear with us if you can, please. Most importantly, Woodstock was to the people, for the people, by the people. It's almost like a miracle that you had all these people who did not know each other all sitting in a field together for a whole weekend in mud and with not enough food and you know not enough bathrooms and that kind of thing. And they kept it together. That's that's not a small thing. I really like this statement. I was wondering if you could elaborate on it. There was sort of a paradoxical factor to it where it talks about how the world today feels far removed from the one which Woodstock was possible. And then so it's like we, we've moved on from that area. But then there's also insights on how the festival is still making an impact on pop culture. You know, it's a heavy period in history now also, but really for different reasons. And the feeling of it is different. It's a lot more, I don't know, I feel like today it's, it's a much more anxious time. There's a lot more just anxiety in the air. My sense from talking to everybody who I spoke to is that it just wasn't like that. You didn't have this ongoing kind of in the background feeling all the time of, oh God, something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. But there were parts of the world or parts of America you could go to to get away from it for a couple of days. You didn't have 400,000 people sitting in a field all checking their phones every 10 minutes. That's a major change. People today, because of the technology, I think have become a lot more inward and a lot more to themselves and within themselves. I think the way that I would just differentiate it from the way things are today is just, you know, there's not as much media. Things were not so saturated. It was possible to go kind of like get lost away from your life for three days just in upstate New York at the time. We don't really have that capability today. Uh, We don't live in that kind of world. And I think that there was more of a feeling back then, uh, if only just because everyone wasn't holding an iPhone, of we're all in this together. I acknowledge you, person sitting next to me. We have to create a little society together. That would be a lot harder to do today, I think. This could be exemplified when we look at the Woodstock festivals that took place in the 90s. It was a different kind of vibe, obviously, and almost had this sort of Altamont-type outcome. Buckspan says the people he talked with who went to the 69 festival didn't go to the later festivals. In fact, they were in an entirely different headspace. In fact, I kind of sensed from a couple of them a little bit of resentment uh, towards those later festivals just because they felt like you know we did this thing it happened it was great close the book on it which i get it i understand that it wasn't so much about them reacting badly to the new festivals 
so much as wanting to maintain a level of respect for the original one and just feeling like, you know what, we did it. It's great that it went off the way it did. Leave it alone. Walk away from it. Just as a point of reference, when I talked with Dan Buckspan about his book, Woodstock, 50 Years of Peace and Music, the Woodstock 50 Festival hadn't been canceled for the first time. Actually, when I was talking with him, they hadn't even pushed back the ticket sales, which was a big factor. But uh, if there is or going to be a Woodstock 50. Honestly, I didn't talk to anyone that had any kind of real uh, enthusiasm to drag themselves back out there for the 50th. But, you know, that I talked to them a while ago, so it may they may be going out there today. I don't know. While I was producing up the interview, it was announced that the festival is back on. Then it was canceled again. Then there was a court case. And at this time, we still don't know if there is going to be a Woodstock 50. Only time will tell. It's hard to convey the sense that I got just of how important this had been to people and how important it had been in their young lives. For myself, I've gone to like 20th anniversaries of things that were very important to me when I was 18 years old. And you just get this really depressing feeling of this is not the same. They're just sort of digging this up to make money. I'm not saying that's the case for this now, but that's definitely the impression that I've gotten when I've gone to those things. And I think for some of the people that I talked to, that may have been their feeling also was we had this great thing that was hugely meaningful to me when I was 18 years old. Please leave it alone. It was really like that. Even if money wasn't or isn't in the play of game, there of course is this question of could a festival do what Woodstock did? Whether it was intentional or a miracle, could the festival capture lightning in a bottle? Once the supposed lineup was announced, it appeared the spirit had left for some. It was also kind of interested, like the kind of people from today that they got also, like Miley Cyrus. I don't know how Miley Cyrus fits in with Dead and Company. I just, you know, I just I don't know what that would sound like one after another. But look, Michael Lang did this before. He's done it a couple of times. And I give him the benefit of the doubt on this. And I assume he knows what he's doing. And he's put thought and work into it. So even though I can't necessarily see how that would work, he probably does. Dan Buckspan, Woodstock, 50 Years of Peace and Music. A link to his book is at the website, deadairradio.org. Something else cool about the book is there's plenty of unreleased photos. Most of the famous photos that got out were taken by Elliot Landy. He was specifically hired by the promoters to photograph the event. So a lot of the things that you've seen were taken by him. We spoke to this photographer, Amelie Rothschild. She was on the ground there taking photos, mostly for Jefferson Airplane. But, uh, you know, she got a bunch of other stuff while she was there, too. And it's never really been used in this way before. I got to be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure why her stuff has not been seen more, because it's certainly any of the photos that Elliot took. Elliot, in fact, called her 
one of his favorite photographers in the world. So we were just very lucky to get a hold of her. The fact that we had her cooperation is a little bit of a feather in our cap that we were able to get that. She's a really nice person. She's really cool. And she really understood what we were trying to do. And I think that that may have been part of why a lot of her work has not gotten out there as much as it should have, is because I sort of just get the feeling that there are a lot of people who approach memorabilia and stuff from Woodstock with a kind of mercenary view about it. Like, what can we get out of this? And we didn't want to do it that way. I just think that she had a good feeling for the level of respect that we had for the event and for the people and for what we were trying to do. The spirit of Woodstock, good vibes, definitely lives on in his book. just want to say that I'm really grateful to everybody who took the time to speak with me for the book. Oh, I said grateful. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Hey, since he brought it up, and this is Dead Air Radio, Grateful Dead radio program, where we play the official releases from the Grateful Dead, we got to ask carefully, how did the Grateful Dead perform at that 1969 Woodstock Festival? Okay, well, um, considering that your show is what it is, this will not make you happy. (laughs) Okay, I know. Yeah, the general consensus from everyone I talked to and also from Jerry Garcia was that 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 was the worst performance they ever in their entire history. Like Jerry Garcia is on record in print saying that. And most of the people that I talked to just sounded like they just they couldn't really get it together that, that night. Michael Wang said that the Owsley family rewired the stage for them before they went on because it had been raining and he may have had, how can I put this, questionable abilities with regard to rewiring an entire stage. Jerry Garcia kept getting electric shocks off his guitar for the entire set, which definitely affected you know, how they played and how it went off. But there was also one guy who I talked to who said, they were amazing. Oh, my God. I've, n- I've never seen a band like that in my life. Yeah, there's always that one guy, right? What was that quote that Wavy Gravy had? Dude, there were like 800 colors of acid there. Buckspan, his book, Woodstock, 50 Years of Peace and Music. Final thoughts on Grateful Dead's performance at the 1969 Woodstock Festival. I would say they certainly, their career certainly recovered from that (laughs) one show and and they went on to do other things. Right. But, you know, the dead are, you know, they're, um, they're a lifestyle. I think more than anybody, uh, we're really tapped into kind of what the, festival promoters were trying to create like they wanted to create kind of their own personal universe that they could function in and that the fans could function in and it wasn't about just a specific performance it was about having something that's going to last for years it was more like we're here for this moment as opposed to how well are they going to pull off dark star A link to Dan's book is at the website, deadairradio.org. That is deadairradio.org. You can also subscribe to the podcast there using your Smarty Pants phone. Thank you so much for listening.